Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning. How's everybody feeling? Everybody have a good spring break? And just a couple of us. All right. I had a great spring break. Uh, Man, excited to be back here, though. And can you believe that one week from today is Easter Sunday? Did it sneak up on anybody else besides me? Just just me? All right. Uh, Well, hey, if you could do me a huge favor, because for some reason, everybody just happens to show up at church on Easter Sunday. And so we're trying to make sure we have enough chairs out, enough dream teamers, have the parking situation figured out. So if you do me a favor, and if you have not done so already, go ahead and pull out your phone right now. Half of you are on Facebook anyway. It's fine. All right, just go ahead and pull it out. And I want to ask you to do me a favor. You can either scan the QR code right there. That'll take you to the Church Center app. Or another easy way to do this is like pull up Safari or Chrome, whatever you have, and type in www.bpc.life. That takes you to our homepage. There's a little thing there that says register for Easter services. And we're asking that you register so we know how many people to expect. No one's going to be checking registrations at the door. You don't have to have your name on a list. That will just help us plan as best as we can. So if you have not done so, go ahead and register today so we can have everything ready to go next Sunday. But before we get to Easter, this morning we are wrapping up our series we've been in for the last month called Holy Spirit, where believe it or not, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. And there's a couple reasons why. Um, One of them is that I think that there's probably not many topics that have caused as much controversy or confusion or questions than the topic of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I know that you're going to have questions. So on the screen, we have that text and number. At any point today, feel free to text in your questions. I set aside time at the end to answer those. And yes, everybody asks me every week, are those real questions? Yes, I don't know who sends them in. I just answer them as best as I can. Uh, But the reason is because my job, if you think about it, it's super weird. Like how many people, their job consists of studying for a large portion of the week to give a 30-minute monologue that helps you become a little bit more like Jesus. See, I would much rather have these conversations sitting down over Mexican food. Amen. I have to get that in every week. Uh, But I'd much rather have these conversations. So what this does, it helps us take this from a monologue to a dialogue, be able to answer some of the questions that you guys have. But I think, too, a lot of times the church has become a place where you can't ask questions. And you're told to check your brain at the door. You just have to have blind faith. But Jesus never shied away from questions. Some of his greatest teaching came in response to questions. And we want to foster that environment because some of you have had questions about the Holy Spirit. You felt like you couldn't ask. And so you just decided it's better to ignore the Holy Spirit. And and if that's you, I get it because I've been there as well. I mean, the Holy Spirit, you know, you can't see the Holy Spirit. Some people do strange things and say they're full of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't know what to think. And so we ignore it. But Jesus said it was better that he left his disciples so they could get the Holy Spirit. Like, I don't know about you, but if Jesus said something, it's better that he leaves so I get the Holy Spirit then we ought to recognize that there's probably some power, some importance to receiving the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so what we've tried to do is just look at who the Holy Spirit is. And we've come up with this definition that we've been working off of for a few weeks now. It's the Holy Spirit is God's personal 
presence. I think that's so important because the Holy Spirit is not some, you know, impersonal force or energy that we tap into when we need something. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's a being. And in the Holy Spirit, we can experience the presence of God. Now, why do we experience the presence of God? Is it so our hairs can stand on end during worship or we can have that tingly feeling when we post our devotional verse on Instagram? You know, those are all great things. And I believe we can experience God's presence in those moments. But the reason that we need God's presence in our life is because that presence brings life. See, the the whole following Jesus thing is not about behavior modification. Jesus didn't die and rise again so you have a better marriage and better finances and you can raise better kids. Listen, you know, those can be good things. But Jesus came not because you're a bad person who needs to be good, but that we're dead people and we need new life. We don't need to modify our life. We need a completely new life. And that's what the Holy Spirit has come to do. And get this, not only does the Holy Spirit give us new life, it actually then empowers us to sustain that life so that we become more like Jesus. That's what we talked about last week with the fruit of the Spirit. We want to be people full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. But I don't know about you, that doesn't always describe me. I'm going to be honest, there's times where I lose my temper There's times where I maybe say things I shouldn't say. I linger on thoughts that I shouldn't linger on. I don't look like Jesus yet. And so I know that I need his personal presence to come do a work in my life. In fact, one of the best analogies I think that I could give you, I think I could, sometimes the weeks all run together, but I think I did this a few weeks ago. But if you don't get anything else out of this series, this analogy was worth the price of admission. A few years ago, my wife and I moved houses. We've actually lived in three different houses in Woodstock. We just move one exit up every few years. So you stay here long enough, we'll be in ball ground eventually. Um, But here's the thing I hate about moving. It doesn't matter if you're moving to the house across the street or a house across the country. It's the same amount of work. And I don't know if if your family's like this. My wife is a phenomenal decorator. But for some reason, everything she buys is like 10,000 pounds. Like we have like a, like a armoire dresser kind of thing in our living room. It looks great. Right now it houses all of our DVDs. We don't even own a DVD player. We just have this heavy object full of DVDs. And so when we're getting ready to move, I didn't want to move. So she said, listen, here, here's how I'm going to sweeten the deal. First, you can have a man cave which has now become my kid's cave at the house. So that one kind of went out the window. But she said, we can budget some money to pay for movers. Listen, I have spent money my entire life. There is no better money than paying somebody to move you. In fact, we paid somebody to come in and pack the house up, which was stressful because the day before we moved, I left to go to work. Nothing is in a box. I come home and everything is in a box. And the next day the movers come and I got to sit there and I ordered them pizza while they moved all the heavy stuff from one house to another. Like I couldn't do that on my own. I needed somebody with that kind of strength to do that for me. And in the same way, there's some things in my life that need to be moved that need to be pulled out. And I don't have the strength to do it. So I need the person of the Holy Spirit, just like I needed some strong people to move our stuff. I need a strong person of the Holy Spirit to work, to bring new life and empower me to be like Jesus. Does that make sense? 
I think, again, if, if nothing else, if you, that was your takeaway from this whole series, that would be the win. But I wanted to end this week. My original idea was let's do another Q&A Sunday because I just love those. But I thought there's actually one other topic when it comes to the Holy Spirit that I think there's some misunderstanding about. And, and listen, we're not going to clear up, you know, centuries of misunderstanding in the next few minutes we have together. But hopefully I can share some thoughts that will point us on the right direction when it comes to the topic of spiritual gifts. In fact, spiritual gifts, there's really only two main passages, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12, that talk about spiritual gifts. And if I can blow your mind a little bit, the phrase spiritual gifts does not even appear in Scripture. Now, if you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, it says, Paul's writing, he says, I want to inform you about spiritual gifts. And you'd be like, Matt, you're a liar. You said it doesn't say spiritual gifts. Remember, Paul didn't write in English. He wrote in Greek. And the actual Greek says, I want to inform you about the spirituals. But that didn't make any sense to English readers. So they actually, the translators add in the word gifts, which I think does some justice to what Paul is getting at. But I think that it has caused some confusion on what is a spiritual gift. Because for some people, our understanding is, okay, I follow Jesus. I receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gives me like these supernatural, you know, superpowers from living in the spirit. And that's my spiritual gift. You know, I wasn't a merciful person before, but now I'm filled with mercy. And I couldn't teach before, and now I can teach. And we think they're like these superpowers, but that's not actually how the Bible talks about them. Now, the first Corinthians chapter 12, somebody has a question about that. You text that in. I only have time to really dive into one passage. And I want to look at the passage in Romans chapter 12. But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of background information on Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans. And then I want to give us a little context of what's going on in the Roman churches that Paul is writing to. Does that sound good? Because even if it doesn't, that's still where we're going this morning. Um, and I know some of you like the background stuff, you like really hate it. But it just it, if you give me five minutes, I promise there's a payoff at the end. Now, we have to understand Paul's definition of the gospel, his understanding of salvation. You see, Paul comes from a very Hebrew background. He says, you know, he was a Jew among Jews. He grew up steeped in Hebrew philosophy and tradition and in the Jewish faith. But a lot of times in our current Western culture, we've been more influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek thought, specifically Platonism from the philosopher Plato. Do you guys remember Plato from school? Not Plato. I know what you're thinking. Plato, the philosopher. And Plato had this idea that there is more to life than our physical bodies. Like there is something else out there. And the greatest good we could ever achieve is to transcend our physical bodies and truly experience the supernatural. Now, that has, you can kind of see how that's kind of imprinted on a lot of people's Christian faith, because what we feel is, okay, we have sinful bodies that are broken, and so the best thing we can do is leave these bodies and then spend eternity with God in heaven as some kind of disembodied spirit. And the only problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's a big problem if we want to follow Jesus. Now, Paul understood the world from a Hebrew philosophy. And so he goes back to Genesis chapter one, where God creates everything. And some of you are like, he's doing this thing again. I promise it's only a little bit of the background. God creates the whole world. And then he carves out this slice of perfection called Eden. 
There's a garden in Eden, and if there's a Venn diagram between heaven and earth, the overlap part is right here. This is heaven on earth. In fact, if you look at the way that the writer talks about Eden, he describes it almost as a temple. It's lifted up on a hill because all the rivers flow down from it. And then, you know, God fashioned Adam out of the ground and he blew on his mouth. In Mesopotamian cultures, they viewed temples as a place where the gods would be with their people. And in the temple, that would show the world what that God's rule and reign looked like. And when they would dedicate these temples, they would take a statue or what they called an image of the God. They would move it into the temple and the priest would blow their lips, their breath on the lips of the image. And that was a symbol of the God has taken up residence and now the priests will rule in the temple on his behalf. So when God fashions Adam out of the dirt and breathes on him, the picture we get is that here's this temple that shows the world what heaven on earth looks like. And Adam and Eve function as priests in this temple, meaning that they make sure that God and his people continue to have relationship, but they were given a special task. God actually told them to subdue the world, so to expand the borders of heaven on earth. But Adam and Eve end up rejecting God, and as a result, sin and death corrupt the world. Now, if this was Greek philosophy, God's solution would be, let's just get everybody out of the world and into heaven. But God's plan all throughout scripture is actually to bring heaven back to earth. So you see the the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. That's where God dwells with his people. And the priests go in and they facilitate sacrifices and worship. And they're helping people in their relationship with God. And when Jesus shows up through his death and resurrection, he does away with that old way of experiencing heaven on earth. And and he has a new way of experiencing it. Before the spirit was in the temple, after Jesus' resurrection, where is the spirit? Anybody want to take a guess? Is it in a building? No, it's in God's people, right? Like, Like now we have the spirit with us. Paul picks up on that idea, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. Paul says the church is God's temple, which means that the church is supposed to be heaven on earth. The church is supposed to be different, and we then are priests who help maintain that relationship, and we facilitate heaven on earth. Does this make sense? So we're not supposed to look like the world that is full of division and anger and strife and fear-mongering and hateful speech and dehumanizing people and demonizing people. That's not what the church is supposed to look like. We're supposed to be a church that is fully unified together pursuing Jesus. Jesus, the the witness that the church has is not just the message we proclaim, but it's how we actually embody heaven on earth. I think that's why so many of us get discouraged when we see scandals in churches, because you think, well, this is supposed to be different. Like if a CEO of a company has sexual misconduct, we, we would expect that, right? You kind of expect that from the world, but the church is supposed to be different. Church is supposed to be heaven on earth. Like if somebody offends you in your neighborhood, that doesn't feel great, but when somebody wounds you at church, that, that cuts deeper because it's supposed to be heaven on earth. Now, Paul picks up on this idea in almost every single letter that he writes. In fact, most of the New Testament is letters that Paul is writing to specific churches. And when Paul writes his letters, he's not writing theological textbooks. You know what he's doing? It's always conflict management. 
He's always dealing with the brokenness of people, which can be both encouraging and discouraging because it's encouraging like, hey, listen, Paul dealt with the same stuff that we're dealing with. But then the discouraging thing is like after 2,000 years, you'd think we would have got a little better at this. But here's the great thing. When you read Paul's letters, all he's doing is navigating conflict and trying to remind the church to be unified together. Now, in the Roman church, it actually wasn't one church. It was a, a network of house churches of like 20 to 50 people. So like if Paul walked in here today, he'd be like, you guys have a mega church. And we would say, you should check out the ones down the street, right? But for Paul, this would be unthinkable. You would get together with different family members and friends. You would meet in these houses. But there was this interesting thing that happened in Rome. After Jesus' death and resurrection, there was a, a Jewish uprising against Rome. And so Rome decides to kick all of the Jewish people out. Now, the first followers of Jesus were Jewish people. And especially in Rome, they had established these churches and they had kind of been in leadership and taking care of things. But when Rome kicked all the Jewish people out, they didn't make a distinction between you know, Jewish people and Jewish Christian people. So all of them are forced to leave. When the Jewish Christians come back, they find that the churches are full of non-Jewish people who are now in leadership and facilitating the church. And they're getting frustrated because they think, well, wait a second. God made promises to our forefathers that he would use us to change the world. These people don't even know the history of our faith. They haven't been circumcised. They don't keep the law. They don't know any of this stuff. How could they be in a position to ever lead us? And then the Gentile Christians get frustrated because they say, how dare you think that you are better than us? Like we follow the same Jesus you did. We just don't have all the baggage that you have. And so this conflict is breaking out to the point that there's fears that the church in Rome is going to completely fall apart. So Paul writes the letters to Romans to encourage them to stay united. Like, hey, listen, don't let these issues become division. Don't let it cause disunity. And for the first 11 chapters, Paul does all the theological work of showing why, guess what? Jewish people, you're right. God did make promise through your ancestors, but guess what? He's now grafted in non-Jewish people, and that was always the plan from the beginning. So we could do, you know, an eight-year series going through the first 11 chapters of theology. I'm not going to put you through that right now, maybe in the future. But when he gets to chapter 12, he gets into all the practical stuff. What does this mean to look like a unified church? That's where we pick up Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Are you guys still with me? All right, we made it through the background part. Here we go. Therefore, so in light of all the theological stuff that we kind of skipped over, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. We actually have a footnote in the Greek. It actually reads, this is your reasonable service. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in church, you may have been misreading this your entire life because what I believed and what I had taught for a long time is that what Paul is saying, hey, here's what you need to do. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Like every day, our lifestyle should be a living sacrifice for God. No, that's great, okay? And that's good theology. We just don't get it from this verse. Remember, he's writing to a church and he says, present your bodies as a singular living sacrifice. In other words, we present our bodies, 
by being a church that shows the world what living sacrifice looks like. That I'm not going to prioritize my preferences, what I would like to do, my hopes and my dreams. But as a church, we're, we're laying our bodies down so the world sees what true sacrifice looks like. And when he says this is your reasonable service, that's a term that describes what priests do. He said, as priests, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, the priest doesn't walk into the temple and say, you know what? Let's sacrifice some pigs today. You know, I've been craving some barbecue. That would be great. The priest doesn't get to pick out how to worship. The priest sets their preferences aside completely. And what do they do? They prioritize serving God and serving the people. And he's saying, guys, a unified church looks like this. You ought to be prioritizing Jesus and others over yourself because that's what priests do. He goes on in the very next verse then and says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So again, he's writing to a church experiencing conflict. He says, don't be conformed to this age. Don't look like every other area of the public life that is fighting and bitterness and dissension. That shouldn't be what you look like. But in order for you to be the temple, in order for you to be heaven on earth, you're going to have to be completely transformed by renewing your mind. Now, what Paul is not saying is like, think happy thoughts, and then all of a sudden transformation is going to happen. But when he says renew your mind, it's the idea of like completely resetting your mind. I remember growing up, I had a paper route. I don't even know if those are a thing anymore. But the first big purchase I saved up for, I paid $150 for a PlayStation 1. At the time, they just called it the PlayStation because there was just one. And I didn't even have any games for it. I had to, like, get a magazine. that had. Do you guys remember they had the little demo games on the disc? A few of us in here. Now, on the original PlayStation, there were three buttons, if you remember. One is the open button because you had to put a disc in. You guys know we used to have discs for video games, so we had to put in, and then there was a power button where you turn it on, and I loved playing Madden and NCAA football. And, and I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, any kind of competition with me. I can get a little competitive. And there are times where uh, you may be losing a game and you may be frustrated and you've already thrown the controller once. And so what you do is you hit the third button, which is the reset button. And when you hit the reset button, the screen goes blank. The PlayStation logo comes back up and it tells me that EA Sports, it's in the game all over again. And it's a, a clean slate. Everything that happened before doesn't matter. And what Paul is saying is, listen, our minds have been so steeped in what the world looks like that we think that that's normal. But we have to reset our minds and realize there's a completely different way to live. And the reset button has to be hit every day, multiple times a day. When you get cut off in traffic, when your coworker throws you under the bus, when the people don't pay you on time, when your kids say things you never would have imagined saying to your parent, you have to hit the reset button because we can't be conformed to the world. We have to be transformed to this new way of living and being. By the way, you're going to have to hit the reset button in your life group when somebody says something that rubs you the wrong way. You're going to have to hit the reset button when somebody you're on the dream team with doesn't show up for the third week in a row and you're left carrying the bag. 
When somebody in leadership does something that steps on your toes or offends you, you have to hit the reset button because the goal is unity. Are we tracking so far? I might run out of time, but we're going to go as far as we can. Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So he starts off by saying, guys, do not consider yourself higher than other people. So for you Jewish Christians, just because you know the scriptures and you've been a faithful follower of God for your entire life, that does not make you better than the the Gentile Christian who comes in and doesn't have one verse of scripture memorized. And by the way, to the Gentiles who are fine eating meat sacrificed to idols, you are not any better than the Jewish Christians because they're still working through some of their faith as they're growing in their relationship with Jesus. He compares it to a body. Like, you know, all the body parts depend on one another. Like, you think about how much you do with your hands. The hands are an extremely important part of the body. But in order for the hand to survive, it needs nourishment. So it may be able to pick up that juicy cheeseburger, but then think about all the other parts of the body that have to work together. The wrist has to help stabilize. The joints and the elbow and shoulder have to move. Your biceps and triceps and forearm are all working together. You bring it up to your mouth, and then your jaw and your teeth have to start chewing it. Your mouth helps break it down. Your tongue moves it into the esophagus. I couldn't control my own esophagus if I tried. And it pushes the food down into the stomach, which begins the digestive process where all the nutrients are extracted, delivered into the blood, and then back out to the parts of the body. So the hand might think it's better than the esophagus because let's be honest, it's probably pretty gross. I haven't seen mine. I don't want to see mine, but it not because it cannot survive without the other parts of the body. By the way, for just a moment, just look around this room. Look at all these beautiful people in here today. You cannot grow in your faith apart from the people in this room right now. That also is why it hurts so much when people leave the church. It's not just an offense. Sometimes it can be, but it's like losing a part of your body. Like everybody at Bridgepoint is essential. Like like we're crazy enough to believe, Paul, like there's no room for bench warmers. And listen, there is space. If you're trying to figure out if Bridgepoint is a church for you, there is no pressure. But if you're here for a long enough time, it's time to take next steps. It's time to be a part of the body because guess what? I need you and you need the person sitting next to you and you need the person sitting across from the room. We all need each other. Matt, what does any of this have to do with spiritual gifts? Well, now Paul has set up his argument. He gets to them in verse six. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. Paul says, hey, we have these different gifts. And then he just starts listing them. Gift after gift after gift. Now his argument thus far has been unity 
by putting Jesus and others above ourselves. And when he starts to list all of these gifts, it's tempting to think that these are gifts that Jesus gave me so that I can be a super spiritual person. But Jesus gives these gifts so that they can be a gift to the church. Another way we could think about this, I could give you $100 and you would think I have $100. But if I say, hey, I want you to bless somebody with this $100, all of a sudden your mind starts churning. Maybe I could buy somebody two gallons of gas for $100. Maybe I could pay for an oil change for a single mom. Maybe I could tip somebody when we go out to eat later. You know, maybe I could buy diapers for, for a new family. Like, our minds start to get creative when we realize that the $100 wasn't for me to go buy groceries for myself. It was so that that could become a gift for somebody else. See, the gift wasn't for you. The gift was to be given to the church. And so if you prophesy, do it in a way that encourages people. If you teach, teach in a way that helps them become like Jesus. If you give, give generously so that nobody goes without anything. The gifts are given so that we can give them away. See, the gifts are for service. They're not for show. They're not to build us up. They're so we can help build other people up. Say, so wait a second, Matt, does... Does that mean that like, these are the only gifts that there are? You know, between the passages that talk about the gifts, there's roughly 22, depending on how you count them. And I don't think that Paul is saying, here's an exhaustive list of the spiritual gifts. I think he's just riffing. Saying, hey, hey, what, what are you good at? What kinds of things is, do you like to do? How has God already blessed you? Turn that around and let that be a blessing to the church. And see, so here's the thing. I actually think spiritual gifts can change over time. Because for me, when, if you guys know my story, my wife and I started coming to Bridgepoint because we moved to Woodstock and we wanted a church home. Like I didn't take a job here. Like we took a chance here on a Sunday morning and we walked in. And you want to know what one of the first things that I did? Uh, the, the pastor at the time asked me to help construct a prayer team training curriculum and to build a prayer team. So you know what my spiritual gift was? It was prayer and it was leading. You know, there have been times in my marriage where we were in a season where generosity was our spiritual gift. There have been times where it's hospitality. We're going to open our home to life groups or to students. Like we just want to, like your, your spiritual gift is how you gift in the church. And I think there's a number of them. I think Paul wants us to get creative. Think about how you use your gift. Now, here's the crazy thing though. Did you know you could actively be serving here at Bridgepoint and not using a spiritual gift? Like some of you are serving in places, I just want to speak as your pastor for a moment, you're serving in places where you're not actually using a gift. Like you have more that you could be doing. You have a home that could be opened in hospitality. You could be discipling someone who's younger than you. You could be using whatever resources at your disposal to be a gift to the church. And here's what we always said, we never say at Bridgepoint, here's what we need. Because also I know God is going to give this church whatever we need. He's going to give it through you and you and you and you and you and me. And over time, that may change. Maybe you, you serve in kids, and that's your spiritual gift. And then maybe there's a season where you're out in the parking lot, or you're on the tech team, or you're on a teaching team. But I think that God gives us these gifts as the church needs them. We're not specialists. We're all utility players. Whatever the church needs, we want to give those gifts. So how do we know what spiritual gifts we have? You know, I'm going to put on my pastor hat here for a minute. We do something here at Bridgepoint called the growth track. where We walk you through this. 
Here's the thing. If you know what growth track is, it's really four steps. The first one is that we're going to tell you everything you need to know about Bridgepoint if you want to make this place your church home. Like we're just going to be up front at the very beginning. Here's who we are. You know, we're imperfect, but we love Jesus. We're trying to be more like him. And now after that, <clears throat> excuse me, in step two, it's all about you. We walk you through your past experiences, walk you through your personality profile. And yes, there's a spiritual gift assessment. Can I just tell you, there's nothing scientific or necessarily biblical about a spiritual gifts assessment. Our goal isn't to put you in, in, into a box. Our goal is to help you get your mind thinking, what are some of the things that God might use me to do? In fact, another way I can show this, there's this diagram that Pastor J.D. Greer at Summit Church in North Carolina uses, and he adapted it from a book called Good to Great with Jim Collins. You guys know I love me a good Venn diagram. So he actually says <clears throat> your spiritual gifting might be in the intersection of these three places. Your affinity, so what are you naturally good at? Right? Like some of you are detail people, like you love spreadsheets. In fact, you have spreadsheets for your spreadsheets. You know, and then there's affection. What, what are you passionate about? So, so there's some things that we're good at, and then there's some things that we're passionate about, and sometimes they almost seem <clears throat> unrelated. So for example, maybe you do love spreadsheets. Maybe you also love people. Yeah, I have no idea what to do with that. Listen, I can just tell you, with the number of people that we move through life groups, we need some people who love people and who love spreadsheets. That helps us help people take next steps. But then the last one, this is really what I want to focus on in the last couple minutes we have is affirmation. What do people say about you? What do people tell you that they've noticed in your life? So here's the thing. If a spiritual gift is something to be given in community, you cannot discover your spiritual gifts apart from community. You need other people to say, you know what? I've noticed your faithfulness over the years. I've noticed that when you pray, it's almost like, like God just listens to you extra closely. Like I've noticed when you teach... I can understand it more than I have. Like I've noticed when you hold a baby, your face just lights up. So, so what do we have an affinity towards? What we love doing, but what do other people say about us? Let me end with this. I think it is so important for each and every one of us to be a part of the church. Whether it's Bridgepoint or not, we can't follow Jesus alone. A hand cut off from the body doesn't live very long. You know, people say, well, I love Jesus. I don't love the church. Listen, I hear you. I understand. There's times where I wrestle with that myself. But I think all of us have a next step to take today. Maybe you're newer here at Bridgepoint. I just want to challenge you with a great next step is growth track. Like you just need to figure out is Bridgepoint the place? I, I, I want you to have a home church, even if it's not here. I told the story before. I've had some friends who are like, hey, can we visit Bridgepoint? I'm like, you're always welcome. I don't know if you're going to feel like this is your fit, but you're always welcome here. And we'd love for you to take the next step. Some of you maybe have already gone through growth track and you've discovered your spiritual gifts, but maybe now you want to go back through because I think, again, they change over time. Or maybe you just need to take somebody with you because you know that they don't want to go through it by themselves. Like, hey, I'm going to be right there with you. But here's what I want to do. Here's our challenge for the week. You guys know we have these practices. If you've been at Bridgepoint for, since the beginning of the year, we have eight practices that define how we want to grow as individuals and as a church. Silence and solitude, Sabbath, prayer, Bible reading, fasting, community, confession, and worship. And I know that's a lot. You, 
can check out the podcast later to hear that all back. Those are eight practices. If you are a bridge one, we don't want you to do all eight. I want you to pick two to focus on. I'll just tell you mine for this year is silence and solitude and confession. Like I have some people in my life that I've asked, like I need to confess regularly to you so that I can be healed. And I want to start every day with time in silence and solitude with Jesus. But here's our, our homework for the week. One of those practices is community. And again, we can't know our spiritual gift apart from community. So I want to challenge you. Ask somebody in your life, what do you see in me? How do you see God working through me? What, what do you notice about me that, that you think would be good for me to know about myself? By the way, I love when people ask me this question because it gives me a chance to brag on you, to see how I think God could use you. I mean, I think all of us, we need people speaking into our life to show us how God might be wanting to use us. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray. We're going to go into our time of communion. It's my favorite part of the whole Sunday. We got prayer journals at the table. If you just want to write out a prayer to God, maybe you just want to ask him, God, would you start revealing some things to me? Whatever it is. But in this moment, let's sit. Let's begin to reflect. Ask Jesus, how do you want to use me? And then this week, ask others, what do you see in me? And how God might want to use me moving forward. Could you bow your heads? Pray with me. Jesus, we're just so thankful. We're thankful that despite the messiness of church, that you continue to work and to bring unity, that you would use us to show the world what heaven on earth looks like. And so I pray right now that in each of our lives, you would reveal these gifts you've given us so we could re-gift them to the church. I pray for people who are trying to figure out what this looks like, that you would reveal that to them. I pray you would send people in our lives who would affirm those very same things this week so we could leave this place living like you so we could look like you. We love you so much, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. As you feel led, you can take communion. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.